You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we look forward to seeing you there. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. Hello and welcome to Trek FM's local watering hole, the 602 Club. I am so excited to be here now. Bad news, Christy was not able to make it. Keep her in your thoughts and your prayers as she is sick and uh, dealing with her Crohn's disease and so she will not be able to make it. And I know you're all um, giving you those uh, big uh, Ethernet hugs. Yeah, we're going to call them Ethernet hugs um, to her and letting her know. So yeah, please reach out to her on Twitter and let her know that you missed her over on Bespin Bell on Twitter there. Um, and hopefully she will be back next week because we are going to be talking about Stranger Things Season 3. But this week... We have back good friend of the show, Scott from the Suicide Squad cast, to talk about the one and only Bumblebee. And I just heard everyone just let out a giant sigh, like, oh, we've got him and not Christy. Dang it. <laughs> now they, I'm sure they hear they feel the same way about me, too. So, you know, <laughs> um, but we're going to do our best. This is this is going to be fun um, since we had talked about the, the original uh, Transformers movie and not the original original as in the animated movie, but uh, the Michael Bay's first film. And uh, I'm, I'm really excited to get into this one as it is a prequel to that. But before we do that, don't hesitate to reach out to us wherever you get your podcast so you can find us. Um, make sure you're subscribed to us wherever you get your podcasts and if you're on apple podcasts or itunes please do uh get us a star rating and review let you uh, let people know what you think of the show scott knows it helps big time when people review your show uh and uh you know those star ratings do too so give us those and if you do that if you leave us a written review we will re- read your review on the show that's how much it means to us that you would spend some time to do that. Of course, you can find us online on Twitter at TrekFM. We're on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. We're also, uh, we've got a listeners-only discussion group. So if you like all of the things we're doing here on TrekFM, all the different shows, if you would like to talk to any of the listeners from around the world, go to the Babel Conference, which is housed on Facebook. If you type Babel into the search field there on Facebook, you can find us, or... If you're on the website at Trek.fm, hit discussion at any of the show pages, um, that button that says discussion, and that would let you in as well. Last but not least, you can shoot us an email, and that's over at uh, Trek.fm slash contact, choose a show, choose the 602 Club, and that comes to Christy and I. So, uh, Scott, I was wondering this. Okay, so it's been a while since we had had a Transformers movie. I think the last one was The Last Night, if I'm not Yes, that was 2017. Yes, um, and I've done my best to just forget it even existed. I did not even see that one. And so I was kind of wondering, as we're looking back, what your transforming history is uh, with the series, uh, with the toys, and with the movies. I was four when the original animated movie came out in 1986, and I saw it in theaters. 
that's that's my history. That I I was there in the eighties. I was I was two when the show started, so I can't remember when I actually started watching the show. But I did watch the show before the movie came out, and I saw that puppy as a four year old in the theater. It's actually the very first movie going experience I can remember. So, like, my movie-going career, as far as my memory is concerned, began with Transformers the movie. So. Yeah, that's great. (laughs) (laughs) So, I watched the cartoon religiously every afternoon after school. I had some of the toys. I was in a family that toys were treats. Toys were not. I was not entitled to anything. So, I I had a few I had a I had a few here or there, but they were something that I enjoyed. I watched the show, and then probably about you know five or you know at least by the time I turned five, you know, as the show kind of died out, like I never finished the cartoon series, but I still counted myself as a Transformers fan. Actually, a Transformer comic book from Marvel. It was the first comic book I ever bought at a food fair grocery store. So I I have a lot of firsts associated with this franchise. Man, that's incredible. So then when they brought out the movies, uh, you know, Michael Bay's first Transformers movie and that series in general, how did you feel about that? And did you get into it at all? Uh, I was there, I think, even opening weekend for the first Transformers film. And I remember enjoying it. I remember still saying... And this sounds so cliche, and I'm sorry, but I still remember saying, not too much of the humans, not enough of the robots. You know, I, I, I even felt that way with the first movie. And then as the series progressed, I kind of had diminishing returns with every film after that. Uh, Dark of the Moon was the last one I saw in theaters. Uh, Age of Extinction, I rented from a red box and never even finished it. Because like I had to return it to get it back on time, and I never, and then I, I still to this day have not seen the last night. Like that, that just didn't happen. So that's that's kind of what I felt like I was I was jazzed. I owned the Blu-ray of the first one. I watched like I commentary tracks and special features. Like that first one kind of gave me a juice, and then I just had diminishing returns with every film after that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny you mentioned that, the idea of, of kind of diminishing returns, because I, I do feel like, to me, and you, anybody who's really interested, you can go back to listening to Christy and I talk about the film, and I, I still enjoy watching it. It's, it's, a, it's a delightful movie, and it just, it's fun, it's vibrant, you know, it still looks great, um, you know, the, the effects in it are, are top-notch, ILM knocked themselves out putting that movie together, and... It's just kind of what you want, for the most part, from a Transformers movie, you know. Um, and, you know, like you said, there could definitely always be more Transformers in it. But um, I think that they did a great job. And at 100%, I mean, it is diminishing returns by exponential numbers by the time you get to... Well, the second movie was awful. The <laughs> yeah, third movie eh. It's maybe a little bit better, but it's not great. And then that's when I, they lost me. And so kind of coming into this one here with Bumblebee when they announced it and what, how are you feeling? Was this a movie you got any excitement about coming out last year? Uh, you know, cause it came out in 2018 during the Christmas season and 
honestly, I kind of feel like it got lost in the ether of movies because Aquaman came out and totally overshadowed it and everything else last year. So I didn't really hear anybody talking about Bumblebee. Uh, I, when I heard about the idea of the movie, I'm going to be honest. My reaction was I couldn't care less. Like w- when they announced the idea, I, I wrote it off. Then at, when it got closer to its release, I started hearing the rumblings like they're using the Gen 1 designs. Like Gen 1 fans are going to be happy. And then I saw that trailer and I was like, okay, this actually looks cute. Like the trailer did do its job. It made me interest, interested enough to say, I might want to check this movie out. But you're right. In the, in that one week, you had Mary Poppins Returns, Aquaman and Bumblebee come at, come out and I saw Aquaman that Thursday. I caught Mary Poppins Returns as kind of the big family get together a couple of weeks after that. I never saw Bumblebee in theaters. I had various personal reasons. I transportation, I, things were going on in my life that were not conducive to me catching this movie in the theater. Because I, quote, didn't have to, if if you understand what I'm saying. So I actually caught this movie almost two months ago to the day, renting it from the red box and just watching it with my two sons. Like, that was the first time I watched this movie was back in May of this year. Yeah, for me, it's funny because I remember seeing the trailers and I was thinking, ah, oh, just, I think what happened is it, as we mentioned, the Transformer series became one of those where it was like, oh, you fooled me too many times. You're not going to fool me again, uh, which had happened with like the Pirates of the Caribbean series. Like I, I haven't seen, I think, the last two of those or I don't remember how many more there have been. But um, and so this just it was just like, I'm not going to go see that. And then I was in Dallas for, for Christmas. And, um, I was over there over an extended period of time. And so I, I had some, some afternoons where I didn't have a ton to do. And this had been getting good reviews. Um, and so every once in a while, a movie will come out. Um, and it had happened already at that point that year because, um, Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse had come out and I had kind of poo-pooed that, and I was wrong. Um, it's a wonderful movie, and and I I still hold it as the best Spider-Man movie ever made. Um, so Amen. One hundred percent wrong on that one. I thought, well, maybe I'm wrong about Bumblebee, and so I did go ahead and go see it, and I I would say, for the most part, kind of pleasantly surprised in in the sense that I feel like. This movie did a great job uh, of being uh, much better than I think it had any right to be. Uh, and um, just it, it was it was fun and all those kind of things. And so, you know, coming into this, this history had so much baggage. And this did a good job of, I would say, you know, not to kind of ruin how I feel about the movie completely, but I, I it took away a lot of that baggage that those other films had created and and it made a movie where it's like 
oh, okay, I, I, I own this now at my home, you know, and I showed it to my wife. She had never seen it, and she thought it was really cute too, and so it's it's probably one we'll watch every once in a while when we just want something really light and fun, and, you know, there's there's not it's nothing too super heavy. Uh, it, it's just a, a, an enjoyable romp with a robot, and um, I, I think, again, that's not what I expected at all, especially coming off the travesty we'd had, and, you know, in the end, too, it, reviews are not necessarily good aggregates of all, of what if a movie is really good. Um, but um, yeah, this one I I remember. I feel like I'd have to look it up, but I feel like this one was in the quite high nineties. Ninety three percent. Ninety three. Okay. Yeah. Yes. So I mean, that's actually I when it comes to this type of movie, that's that's a great aggregate. Um, you know. So although. Every Marvel movie seems to get that kind of rating, too, and I don't necessarily always agree with that. So, anyway, that could be a whole other show, um, and we won't go down that road. But how did you feel then coming into this and watching it and knowing that this would be a prequel to the previous Transformers movies? I was kind of watching it going, okay, how much... How much is it going to feel like it needs to connect itself to, as colloquially, the Bayformer movies? You know, like, I was like, how much does it feel like it needs to explain stuff? And to be honest, except for a couple of things that are almost throwaway and cute and, like, winks to the audience, it doesn't try to do that. I mean, except for including Section 7 a cameo of a younger version of a character that we'll see later. And then at the end saying, Oh, and this is how Bumblebee becomes a 1977 Camaro. You know, it, it, it doesn't feel like you could watch this film. What almost, I know I will say 100%. You could watch this movie by itself, never seen any of the previous films and you would be perfectly fine. And I think because they start the movie off with the fall of Cybertron, they really set this film apart where it can stand entirely on its own. I think, to me, those were the smart ways in which this movie is a prequel. Because by kind of doing the job that none of the other Bay movies really had, and again, I've only seen three of them, I never saw the others, so I don't know if they ever went back and talked about the idea of why... You know, what was going on on Cybertron, how they lost their planet, you know, the reason for Transformers being across the galaxy and specifically on Earth. You know, all of that gets explained within the first, you know, three minutes of this film. And and like you said, it is not about um, necessarily filling in any of the gaps but it fits perfectly with everything we knew before, and it doesn't matter if you'd seen those other films. In fact, if you see this film first and then you went to those other films, you would appreciate it. You know, they, but it didn't, it was not dependent on, in any way, shape, or form of you having seen those other films. And so, in many ways, this is the kind of like perfect prequel in that sense. Like, it does the job of connecting and all of that stuff. But in a way that doesn't detract or hurt or 
take away from the story that they were telling in this movie with Bumblebee and his new friend Charlie. And I thought, you know, to me, that was really strong. Um, and like you said, the way that they then like wink to you at why he's a Camaro is fantastic, you know, because one, he's hiding um, himself because he's already been the Beatle um, and people know him as that. And so this is his next disguise. Um, and two, again, it's just that wink to the audience like, yep, when you see that next movie, you'll know exactly why he's in that form instead of the Beatle next time. Yeah, exactly. And but then this film, I, it, I'm not sure if some people would call it pandering or nostalgic, but the fact that in this film, all the robots have the 1980s cartoon designs like this was a movie that i could actually look at the transformers and go oh i know who you are you don't even have to name them they don't even have to speak but they made them look enough like the way they and i hate using this but i'm going to do it quote supposed to look like that i go i'm just watching the movie going oh it's rc it's starscream it's skywarp it's thundercracker like I, i'm i'm i had the visual I had the visual language of going, oh, I know who these robots are now. Unlike some of the Bayformer movies where I'm like, okay, who's that supposed to be again? Because they're nodding at the design, but it's so different enough that I don't – I need you to tell me who they are just to confirm for me who is this yeah. robot supposed to be. Now, the the one thing that was very funny to me <laughs> was that – and and I get that this is the way it is with the the um the cartoon and the comics and all of that, but it's like they're on Cybertron. Why do they look like cars? Um, the, but it and I know that that's this. It's just the way it is. But it's it just the way it is. It's like yes. Why do they look like human car? Like the the cars that humans make on our planet when they're like planets away it doesn't make any sense but you just let it go you let you let that go and actually if you look back to the original cartoon they do look more alien when they're on cybertron you know if if, if i'm gonna put on my nerd glasses go well you do know that back in 1984 you know yeah, yeah that that's something that the movies specifically do that you know they don't they have wheels and uh, so that that's beside the point. But no, I, I think you're you're right too in this one as well. It it allowed you to make sense then though of the evolution of the characters then in the next films because the the fact that they would look slightly more modern than just you know an eighties uh, you know truck you know the 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 reason why um, Optimus Prime has a, a slightly different look you know it, he's a different type of of truck than the one he is in the 80s like all of those kind of things that just they do a very good job of kind of hinting at why that's different especially since they just show you that bumblebee can choose to be any car or any machine he wants when you know he's the the army jeep the yellow army jeep at the beginning which is great um and then of course chooses the beetle and then in the end becomes the camaro so they just kind of wink at all that stuff which is it's explaining it without really explaining anything and that's well, fantastic stuff and when you notice that whenever they choose a different vehicle to transform into it also affects the look of their robot form 
which mm-hmm. I which goes to that evolution. Well, why do they look different? Well, if you pay attention, they even their robot forms look different throughout the movie, especially with the Decepticon triple changers. Their robot forms subtly with with no explanation, but they look different when they go, oh, they were cars. They then scanned the Harrier and the helicopter. And then when they turned into robots again, their robot forms look different because now they've they've accommodated the fact that now they can turn into those vehicles as well, which allows their robot form to consistently evolve throughout the series. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think um, that's a, that's just a smart design. I mean, they, they they really, when you, when you look at the way they do this, they, they take into that stuff into account. um, And it does feel like, especially in this movie, it did really feel like they were trying to pay attention to, pieces of a beetle um and what that would look like then in transformers form instead of a little bit in the bay movies the other way around you know um so yeah i think that's that again it's just really smart and and as a prequel this just again works perfectly with those next films but we can say this wholeheartedly if you've never seen those films and they they kind of turned you off this might be a film that you really really enjoy because it it does have i would say a a slightly smaller scope to it so i think it has more heart to it is what i would say it is a completely different tone in my opinion like you almost wouldn't believe that this movie is in the same franchise as those other movies. Because this isn't a Michael Bay movie. Like, Michael Bay didn't... And I don't mean that as a slight, because I can enjoy a Michael Bay movie. But this isn't a Michael Bay movie, which makes it its own animal within the franchise. Yeah, you know, I... I I think... I think what it is, is that this movie is specifically trying to basically be a John Hughes type of movie. And the other Transformers movies are definitely trying to be more of like the 90s action style films, obviously, with with Bay. Um, And so, but I wouldn't necessarily say I'm, I was never, in that first movie, I was connected to those characters and what's going on with them. Uh, But I do think that because this movie isn't quite so epic in its scale, because it just has a smaller uh, scope it's focusing more on just one of the characters and it has less transformers in it as well everything is smaller and therefore feels a little bit more intimate because of that and i think it does lead many people to feeling like this movie does have more heart to it like you said like it it feel again it just feels more intimate which i think is which is good, you know, I think you want, especially the prequel movie, you do want the film to feel smaller in scale and scope than what comes pre- previously in many ways, because um, this is the beginning, not the epic end. So Right. Well, and you said it, you know, it wants to be a John Hughes movie. I felt like it wanted to be an Amblin entertainment movie. Because uh, yep, I- yep, yep, very similar. Because I saw the relationship between Charlie and Bumblebee, especially because they made the choice of having Bumblebee's memory cells 
be uh, destroyed, uh, well, not destroyed, but severely damaged, that his childishness, I got an E.T. vibe through so much of this movie because of how childish he was allowed to act. And I thought that added to that, that 80s human with the, with the alien friend. And, you know, and that, and that was a trope you saw a lot in 80s movies. And I thought this movie played on that trope, but did it so successfully that I wasn't rolling my eyes at it. I was getting, I had more of a sense of, aww, as I watched the film and like, I like this feeling. Yeah. You know, I think that's one of the things that I really enjoyed too. And I think it's a great time to, to talk about Haley Steinfeld because I feel as though for her, cast as charlie i don't think i would like this movie as much if it wasn't her i think she sells every single part of what she's going through because honestly what she's going through is kind of cliche in in film you know the loss of a parent i mean what disney movie have we not had that happen you know where they don't have a kid a parent you know and so but i think she's just the type of actress that makes you feel for her as she's moving forward and she's just so natural and and likable that i want to follow her along in the story and and therefore her relationship then with bumblebee the moment you get to the end and she's trying to save his life and it all comes out that this is exactly what she would have done for her father if if it had been in the same situation that Bumblebee has kind of come become a surrogate for what her father was, you know. Um, and so I just I think that she was pivotal casting here, and I really enjoy most of the things that I've seen her in. And um, yeah, I, I I can't imagine this movie without her. Honestly, I I would agree with that because she was charming to watch, and I can only off the top of my head think of two other movies that I've. Well, I can't say seen her in because one of them was Spider-Verse when she was the voice of Gwen Stacy. And the other one was The Edge of Seventeen. And it's kind of funny watching her play in that one a very misanthropic character. And in this one, she's very relatable and very sympathetic. And you want you feel for her and you and you want what's best for her and you kind of look at her life and you go it's not a bad life but i understand why you have issues and i'm okay with that and seeing that journey of bumblebee kind of opening her heart back up was just adorable to be honest with you yeah and i i think she has a way of making you believe that she's actually going through these things um and and again, that's I don't think that that's really something that everyone can do. Um, and um, I I really appreciate the fact that um, she's done such a great job of. And and they honestly just did such a great job with the casting here. I, it it's it really is phenomenal. And so, um, I I have to ask you, um. I I feel like she would make a great Batgirl. Yes. And considering who wrote the screenplay for this movie, I would not complain about that one bit. I mean, she is writing the 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 script, the Birds of Prey movie. So, you know, I I feel like, you know, it'd be great to great to see her. Yeah. I I could totally see her as like a yes, as a Batgirl year 1. Absolutely. 
I I I I would get behind that casting. Yeah. Yeah, I like it. So what did you think then of her friend slash I guess semi romantic interest uh in in Memo, her next door neighbor who you know befriends her and Bumblebee, but also, you know, he uh he likes her. Uh that was cliche but didn't bother me but you know it, it's it, he's one of those characters that he's there he does what the plot requires of him he's not as he's not as he played awkward in a he was charmingly awkward and not painfully awkward throughout the film so it so my empathy my, my empathetic nature didn't make me cringe when he was on screen he, he he was he was fine. He was he was enjoyable enough to watch. He wasn't painful to watch. He was there doing what the plot needed him to do. And so, you know, I don't have anything bad to say about the actor or the character, but I'm also not, you know, head over heels either. It's the guy it's the boy next door who has a crush on the cute girl and he's awkward and geeky and is having a hard time talking to her, which I've seen innumerable times in various eighties and nineties films. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think, um, he, he does a, a good job of doing exactly what you want in this movie, of uh, being the, um, the very geeky kid that lives next door. That's, and likes the girl that's probably out of his league, possibly, uh, and yet, what I love is that, you know, I, I think they show throughout the movie is that they both are kind of geeky in their own ways, you know? Uh, he might be more classic geek in the sense that, obviously, he, um, he's he got, you know, Star Wars posters and, you know, Indiana Jones posters and E.T. posters and stuff all over his room. Um, but at the same time, um, because of that, I feel like they kind of understand each other. They're both outsiders, um, you know, they're the outsiders in this movie and, you know, they're not part of the popular crew. And I think that allows him to be able to, um, understand her. And, and I think I, what I liked is, you know, kind of the way that he does pursue her, even in romantic senses, um, is, is very understated. Um, and it's not the main point of the movie. Um, and I think they, they, they handle that pretty well. Um, it, it's, it's cute and you kind of know where it'll go in the future, but, um, it's, it's not really the main focus of the movie. You know, the main focus is the story of Charlie kind of finding herself again after the loss of the foundation of her life, her father and Bumblebee and Memo in some ways help her find a new sense of normalcy, which I like that he's a part of that, which is kind of great. And they don't force the romantic relationship like the best he gets is a peck on the cheek and even at the end when he tries to hold her hand she's like we're not there yet and that that i appreciated it wasn't like within the span of like the two day two to three days this movie takes place over like they're just instantly in love and like have this big passionate kiss at the end no they're teenagers who kind of who are kind of like like each other 
And, you know, maybe their relationship has been accelerated slightly just because of the 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 adventure that they have participated in over the course of the film. But it's not unrealistically accelerated like many films would do. Yeah, that I think you make a great point in the sense that, you know, having that realism and that, yeah, it really has only been a couple of days that they've known each other, you know, and even if you really like somebody, you don't always move that fast, you know, so and, and again, I think it it plays off well because we're also moving our main character from one place emotionally to another and that sense of healthiness that she has by the end of the story is brand new, you know, so it's not always the best time to jump into a relationship anyway. So, again, I just it, it it's there's a wholesomeness about it, which is actually really nice. And you just don't see in a lot of movies these days. Um, and I think that's really excellent. Like that's something praiseworthy in a movie that they they show characters being reserved physically in a relationship um, by not just rushing into something, you know. Um, hopping hopping into bed with people is not usually the best idea, especially when you're a teenager. So um, I, 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 when you've just had a major emotional uh, changes in your life. So I, again, this movie is is there's a wholesomeness to it, which is excellent. And it adds to the rewatchability of this film because, I mean, I've seen it like two or three times in the past couple of days as I was prepping for this podcast. And the fact that it is a PG-13 movie, but I had no issue letting my six-year-old watch it. Like, that is astounding to me that, wow, I'm okay with my, like, there, there's nothing that makes me go, I'm going to have to have a talk with my son after I see this. No, you know, he can watch this. There's a couple of right. bad words and he knows they're bad. Either he doesn't know they're bad words, so they don't connect with him or they know they're bad words and he knows not to repeat those words. Well, and I think that's the thing too here. And I will just say this as, as wholesome as this movie is, I wish honestly that they had pulled out some of that you know, use of, uh, you know, dropping the S-bomb and stuff like that every once in a while. If you pull those things out, this movie could be PG. And there's no reason for that not to be the case, especially when it's, we're talking about the Transformers, right? And so I, I do feel like we've lost something in the sense that you can have, like you said, you don't have any problem letting your young kids watch this movie. And it could have been even better if they just pulled out some of that stuff. Um, that's a slightly we call more adult, but there's really no reason for it. You can say other words there, um, and it, it's not going to hurt the film in any way, shape, or form. So I do kind of wish that they had done that because, again, there's nothing wrong with making a great PG film. Like you can do it. It's like they're fra like every movie has to be PG thirteen these days. No, it does actually, and uh, I have a funny story about that. That kind of is in franchise. The original animated film in 1986 was PG, and they intentionally inserted two cuss words into the film to assure that the MPAA would not give them a G rating because they wanted the PG rating back in 1986. So there's actually a history Ooh, of this rating. in the franchise. Yeah. Oh, man. You rebels. So of course, that's when PG could have like sex scenes in it, you know, oh, like, yes. like Top Gun and stuff. So. Um, yeah, that's, it was a totally different time. Um, 
So we do get, like you mentioned, Sector 7, and John Cena plays Jack Burns. And um, what did you think of his addition in the movie and just kind of the character that he turns out to be? Um, I, I am so conflicted about John Cena in this movie because I actually don't th- – I think this is actually the first film I've seen of his. Like I can't think of a movie that he's acted in that I've seen before this film. And so I'm going into it going, okay, you're another pro wrestler turned film actor. You play at the camp factor, which I feel like works for your persona, and that's fine. And he's the I keep on saying this because this movie, I feel like by setting this as a period piece in 1987 and and obviously writing it to feel like a, an 80s movie, there's a lot of things that we would consider cliches or tropes that this movie plays with. And, and so he just feels like that tropey military guy who's all, <laughs> no, no. Uh, no, the, the, you know, the commies or the, or, or the enemy. And then by the end kind of gets a little bit of heart when he realizes that there's a, there's a greater evil and realizes the, what he thought was evil wasn't evil. So he, he plays that, that stereotype and he plays it, he plays it fine. He plays it well enough. He's fun to watch. Watch, you know, my favorite scenes is when he's like commenting on how dumb the Dr. Powell is because he's like, you do realize this is a terrible idea, right? It's like his his paranoia is actually justified because since he's scared of all of these aliens, when the Decepticons show up, you're like, no, actually, you're making sense. I actually agree with what you're saying right now. You're wrong about Bumblebee, but you're right about these two Decepticons. So I, I think you're absolutely right in, in your thought process of you know John Cena because I, I feel like he plays the role kind of similar to the attitude the rock might have. Um, you know, you could see Dwayne Johnson being in this role. I like though, that they kind of play him as this, you know, all intents and purposes, the hard ass, you know, military guy who comes off like a jerk at the beginning of the movie, but then is the only one who's asking questions throughout the movie about these Decepticons. And of course, his funniest line is probably like, they've even got Decepticons in the name. Yes. (laughs) Should we really be trusting these people? You know, and it's just it's it's great because it's it's a wink at the camera that, yes, their name is totally stupid. They give it away with the name. And then, of course, like you said, by the end, he realizes that He's fighting for the other side. And part of that, too, is that he sees what they're doing and it frightens him. And and in a good way, like his the 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 hubris of humanity doesn't overshadow him enough that he can't see how dangerous these Decepticons are. And even feeling like that, oh, they're showing them the way to defeat them. Well, and to find them and all like, yeah, but still, they're like way more powerful than we are. So, if they really truly put out a call, do we want more of them coming? So, like again, he's the only one with brain power in this movie, which is shocking coming from what you would think is just going to be the meathead uh, military guy. And I kind of, I mean, I kind of like that because in the um, 
I would say like say Man of Steel. You know, the military is shown there to be competent um, men and women who actively then are working with our hero instead of against our hero, and that's end up what we end up getting in the very end of the movie with John Cena. Um, and I kind of like when the military isn't just shown as being these meathead macho guys all willing to just shoot things all the time. So I I appreciate that they flipped it around a little bit. So Well, and that's something that carries over from the earlier films in the franchise because in, in Michael Bay movies he has a great respect for service members. And you get and you get that with that squad that we that we meet in the first movie and it carries through, you know, at least the first three movies that I actually watched. So I think the difference here with John with Jack Burns is that he's former military and now working for Sector Seven. And there's always something about when you start working for the clandestine government, you know, organization that makes you that that takes you like down a notch to like you're supposed to be even more evil. You're not even like proper military anymore. And yet his military background, which they hint at very quickly at the beginning of the movie that he was in Grenada, you know, and, and that scene with him training and like shooting the guy with a paintball gun was very endearing for his character. Yeah, that was I mean, yeah, he again, he comes off like he's going to be a total jerk wad throughout the entire movie and then he slowly makes that change and it, again it's just kind of nice to see that happen so uh, what did you think about the the rest of charlie's family here um with her younger brother and then of course ron and her her mom you know what they were let they're there to be comic relief you know they're there's they're there to be the Oh, this is my crazy family that I can't stand. And they have to be just annoying enough that you're sympathetic with Charlie when she gets annoyed with them. But they weren't completely off-putting. And in my mind, I saw them as a, a parallel to the uh, to the Witwickies in the Bayformer films, but not as annoying as Sam's parents were. Like... Uh, Charlie's family could be annoying to her, but they were never obnoxious to the audience, in my opinion. And so I felt like they played their part. And then by the end, by the time that Ron's there doing the Miami Vice and the, in the family's station wagon, helping Charlie and Bumblebee get away, they got that. They even got their hero moment as her, like, they became a family in that moment where they're willing to endanger themselves to to help Charlie forward. So they proved to be, like, they they had a point. They, they, they got to be helpful and not just there to be obnoxious and annoying and comic relief. Yeah, that's the thing I think I would be annoyed with them throughout the entire film if there wasn't that moment where her mother confronts her about her being a jerk to everybody in the family and acting like you know um, she's the only one who bad things have happened to Mm -hmm. and what I appreciated about that moment was that her saying to her daughter we all went through what we went through we all lost your dad. 
it's not as though you're the only one who lost your dad. And we're all trying to find a way to live without him in our own way. And it's not as though we're trying to forget him. And you're not the only one who lost him, you know, and that that's a good reminder because, you know, this movie makes abundantly clear teenagers are the center of their own universe and Charlie forgets that there are other people that lost her father other than her and especially her mother. And, you know, obviously it's been a few years. And so her never, ever trying to really get over that and just kind of continuing to continuing to wallow in the pain hasn't just been hurting her. It's been hurting her family, too. And so I really appreciated that moment. It's very small, um, but I thought it was just an important moment to say, look, just because bad things happen to you doesn't mean you're necessarily the only one that bad things happen to, you know, and especially here, not the only one that lost somebody extremely important to them in their life. And it's always nice when the, even when they're the protagonist, when the obnoxiously self-centered teenage character gets reasonably put in their place. And that's exactly what her mom does. And as you get older, you appreciate those scenes a little bit more because you go, yeah, check yourself. Well, and I think, you know, one of the things I always appreciate about movies, too, is when they have the opportunity to be able to allow parents to have conversations with their kids. You know, this is one of those, like you said, you you can watch this movie with your kids and it allows you to be able to have maybe some important conversations, not about things that they have to, oh, we have to have a conversation about that now. But this is the kind of movie that allows you to have good, healthy conversations with your kids about things like loss and, you know, how we deal with those kind of things. And, you know, it, it's it's a very small part of the conversation of the movie. But overarchingly, you know, that's what Charlie is dealing with the whole time, that the loss of, of a, her father and having to come to grips with the fact that he's not there anymore and find a way to actually move on instead of just kind of living in the past. It kind of reminds me of... uh Star Trek Deep Space Nine, you know, Cisco at the very beginning, the prophet saying, but you live here, you know, and that's exactly what Charlie does. She lives in the moment of her father dying all the time instead of finding a way to move forward with her life. Her life has just kind of been on pause. Now it's finally unpaused. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So... We have two Decepticons, uh, Shatter and Dropkick. Um, and so what did you think about them as the villains here? You got Angela Bassett and Justin Theroux doing the voices as well. Um, did you feel like they, they fulfilled the role they needed to as Decepticon menaces? Would you like to have seen more? Was it just enough? I won. As an old school Transformers fan, I love the fact they were triple changers. Like that, that was a geek out moment for me because I was like, triple changers were the things that like you always, I never got to have one of those, but it was like, oh, that's cool. They transform into, I can do three things with them, you know? And so that, that was fun. And I like the fact that they really did have, they let them kill humans in a, in a not gory, 
Like it was, it was gory without being gory because they like exploded into goo, which is yeah, they beni- like turned into water almost. <laughs> right. So it's benign enough that you know. Once again, I'm watching it with my six year old, and they don't turn. You know, they don't explode them into mat chunks of meat and bone. But so many times you have these the bad guys who shouldn't give a rip. And yet, don't just massacre everyone in their wake. And the fact that these two Decepticons got to do that multiple times in the movie when it's when they felt like it, I kind of appreciated the villainy of that. Otherwise, they just looked really cool, and their designs were awesome. I I really did enjoy like their like muscle muscle hot rod versions and then when they turned into the harrier and the super cobra that was just you know that added to you know they weren't there i think another thing was their motivation wasn't they by themselves were going to take over the world no they knew their place their job was to hunt for this one person and then they were supposed to basically ring the dinner bell for everybody else. So it was so because there were only two of them, they weren't trying to take over the world all by themselves. They were appropriately playing their piece of the overall plan. And that because the movie overall was smaller and you've got one protagonist and two antagonists it you know it seemed like an appropriate scope for their mission yeah i think the thing that made them really great was exactly what you said the fact that they they are villainous enough so that we don't want them here we get why it's it's imperative that we stop their mission because we see how they feel about humans which is they are ambivalent enough to just murder them at the drop of a lug wrench i guess you know so they just, they really, uh, they have no thoughts about, they gi- they give no fracks about us, you know? <laughs> and so, and that's the dangerous place that, that, that we are with them. And so I appreciate so much that um, they, they play it off like that. And I think, you know, Angela Bassett's voice is perfect. And she kind of has almost like the female James Earl Jones nest going on. So excellent thought there. Yeah. You know, like she just, her voice is amazing. Like I could listen to Angela Bassett talk for hours on end because she just, there's such resonance there. Um, You know, I think Justin Rathrow is fine. You know, I don't think he does anything necessarily special with, with the character of dropkick, but dropkick doesn't get a ton to do other than just, you know, wantonly murder people every once in a while. So, um, I think, it, again, like you said, they're not there to take over the world. They have a a piece in the plot, which is to find Optimus Prime, and they're doing that through Bumblebee, and I think they just do a great job um, with the Decepticons and their part in the story. And they don't try to make it so overly big that it 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 makes the movie something it shouldn't be, which I think is really smart. Absolutely. Could could not agree more. So, I mean, the movie is called Bumblebee. I feel like we should probably talk about Bumblebee. And I think it's interesting because we already know Bumblebee from the Bay films. And there's not all that much, I feel like, that he there's 
that's that different. I feel like the thing that makes him different in this movie happens to be what they can do effects-wise with Bumblebee, and that really kind of made some of the scenes stand out personality-wise, like when he's waving at her for the first time, you know, as she's driving up trying to get to her mom in the car, who's driving the car, she shouldn't be driving the car, because she knows that her, if her mom finds out it's a Transformer, it's going to be, you know, crazy, and I think... All of those kind of things are when they're running away from the police car <laughs> and, you know, they're like gliding on the side of the um, the highway and he's like holding on to, you know, the the railing there to get him around and all like all of those kind of things. Like they look so good for the most part. And it just it opened up so much of the fun um I guess amiability of Bumblebee as a character, you know, he is kind of childlike and they really play that up in this film. Um, and again, I think he's perfectly in line then with what we see later on too in the film. So it's just a great culmination of everything you'd want in a prequel movie about a character we've already seen before. Well, his character is the one that I felt like ha- that the movie felt like it needed the you got some explaining to do like like this is the, that he's the one character where he's the most connected to the other films and so this is the one where it's like why why can't he talk how did he learn to use the radio why does he turn into a camaro you know like like that's the one where like when i talked about the winks and the nods earlier in the episode those are the ones where most of them are coming where they had to write in we need to drop the hints of where how did his character end up the way he does by the time of that first Transformers movie. And so Bumblebee as a character is the one that gets that most connective tissue going on. Yeah, and it works. I think they do it really well. And like you said, it's not so heavy handed that it makes you lose perspective of where you are in this movie. It never takes away from where you are in the movie, which is excellent. So um, my favorite part about that was at the very beginning when he's fighting Blitzwing and, you know, I love the fact how they explain why his voice box gets ripped out. It's because he actually says the line, I'll never talk. And Blitzwing's like, well, we'll make sure of that. I'm like, and when it happened, I was just like, oh, okay. Like, it's just one of those like cliche action lines, but it was like, well, you know, if you're going to have to get his voice synthesizer ripped out that's that great way to go out was him saying i'm not gonna i'm not gonna tell you so while i'm being a sadistic decepticon that's why i rip out your voice box well and i like that too because it also explains why you can't just fix it with earth technology you know it's 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 not something that would be easily overcome then even by bumblebee because what they would need to create that doesn't even exist here and might not even have all of the materials needed so again it, it like you said it's just a very effective way to make that happen so you're set up for the subsequent movie but without a, making it something where oh it takes you out of the film because we made such a big deal out of it no it just it's a it's a part of the flow of the film and it makes sense in the fight and what we know of the Decepticons anyway and I think, you know, 
just on that, you know, we we've mentioned it a few times, but I do feel like for the most part, this movie looks really good. I think uh, the CGI work here is is pretty phenomenal, and that's what you need in a Transformers movie. And the fact that the quality hadn't gone down at all from the previous films, you know, I, I think everything for the most part looks and feels pretty seamless. Um, you know, there's a there's a few things always in a in movie like this here or there. But I, I do feel like this this movie looks pretty good. I could probably have done without the the scene with Bumblebee in the house. It feels a little derivative, too derivative of like the first movie when they're in the yard. Um, and you know, anyway. But otherwise, again, I think this movie just it looks great, and and that's the thing that I help again great effects are ones that become ones that you don't really think about and I think for the most part I don't really think about the effects in this movie because they're great I think the, the the change in the character designs helped the the transforming to it was simpler it wasn't as overly complicated there didn't seem to be as many moving parts as they were in the in the bay films and I felt like that because I get the sense this movie had a smaller budget. It looks not as not as splashy as the other films, because once again, the film didn't need to be. So the more stripped down designs of the Transformers, the more simplified allowed for the transformations and the the fights between the robots, like I could follow the fight. I knew what was going on. Speaking of like Revenge of the Fallen and how I could actually lose, like who, who am I watching? What's going on? What's this fight all about? This movie never had those issues. And it, it, I felt like it served the film to make it look better when it came time for the robot versus robot fights. Yeah, 100%. And, and I think, it obviously helps that they don't have as many Transformers, you know, and so they're able to just focus on what they do have. And I think that makes a big difference. Uh, and by not overworking the plumbing, uh, they they made it much easier uh, for themselves uh, so they could really focus on what they need to focus on and make everything look great. And like you said, again, too, this movie has a smaller scale and there's, there's a... There's a sl- I feel like there's a sense more of um, tangibility uh, just because of the smaller nature of the movie, which is good, which is good. I mean, you know, we're almost always, I feel like, not on some kind of set where we feel like we're, you know, in a real environment. And so that always helps, too. The realer the environment is the more you feel your brain works in the CGI rather than the other way around. And, and then on the kind of the flip side that the Cybertron prologue looked great. I mean, I was literally sitting there going, you can make a whole movie just about this part of the film because it looked good. It looked good. And for an entire CGI world i mean like everything you're watching in that prologue is cgi there is nothing practical or real about that at all and yet it still looked better than some films i've seen like the cgi still looked better than some films i've seen recently and still looked more uh tangible 
to me. And it very much reminded me of there was a PS3 game. There was uh, Fall uh, War for Cybertron and Fall of Cybertron. And it, the designs looked like a combination of that and the cartoon that I it was a great way to start the movie. And it really felt like, no, like if they're going to put their money into a big CGI fest, do it in a little five minute segment right there at the movie to really kind of draw you in, which it worked for me. And I didn't feel like it's the film suffered at all. Yeah, no, 100% agree with you. Um, so one of the things that has been happening in film, I would say, in the last few years, seems to be a nostalgia fest when it comes to everything. <laughs> but specifically, we seem to be on a kick, which is to take old songs from previous eras uh, and kind of almost build an entire movie around when they play. And so the soundtrack here is full of 80s hits, and it feels very similar to a lot of other movies that have been using, you know, um, these type of, of film, uh, these type of music moments to bring back feelings to the audience. Um, how did you feel about how that works in this movie? And did you ever feel like they were trying too hard or, um, or trying to make you forget something that's happening on screen with a nostalgic moment and cover up some cinema sins? I mean, did you ever feel like that and all? Cause sometimes I feel like, and I'll just be honest, sometimes I feel like that's happening in movies these days by using this type of music where you start bopping along to higher love and you're not really necessarily paying attention to whether or not they're shortcutting something or, you know, any, any of that, those kind of issues. I'm going to be honest. This movie didn't like, I know exactly what you're talking about. And I have had films where I have felt that way, but I didn't feel like this movie was trying that hard. And, and I mean, that as a compliment, like they weren't, they weren't putting a lot of effort into it. Uh, I mean, actually, one of the musical moments in this movie was a moment that made me grin like an idiot the first time I watched it a couple of months ago. Do you? I'm kind of curious. Do you know what the moment? Can you guess what the moment was? Um, I don't know which one. I I'm not sure. Okay, going back to my transformer geekiness when. When Charlie and Memo go to the cliff where the where the the cool kids are hanging out mm -hmm. and they dare her to dive off the rock and Bumblebee smacks her with the door and then starts playing, you got the touch, you oh, got yeah. the power. Yeah. And that song is originally from the 1986 anime movie. It's from that soundtrack. And so for me, I'm sitting there going, okay, that's just a cute Easter egg that like – Maybe a handful of us who are Transformer fans actually get why that particular musical choice is so freaking appropriate. But that's what the music did for me was like playing that particular song that's literally from the very first Transformers movie ever. It just made me grin. And so is that nostalgia? Absolutely. But did it work for me? Absolutely. And then the rest of the song choices, I didn't feel like, oh, here's the obligatory 80s song that you play. Um, actually, my three-year-old, even today, was saying, 
play the Bumblebee song. And he said, it's hit it. Play the Bumblebee song. It took me one to realize, oh, you mean it takes two to make a thing go right. That's the song you want me to play. <laughs> and and, and the, I actually bought the Bumblebee soundtrack after watching this movie for the first time because my boys wanted to listen to it. Like they get on a kick of between this and the Ready Player One soundtrack. They were like, we want to hear those songs, not knowing that they're 80s songs. But they were like, play the Bumblebee song. Play the Bumblebee song. And so actually it just works for me. And it's made driving in the car kind of fun that my six-year-old, three-year-old want to listen to 80s rock. That's great. Yeah, I um, I specifically asked the question like that because I, I feel like many movies do that these days. But I do feel like this movie, like you said, it didn't feel like they were trying as hard to create a moment with the, the 80s music as were trying to just pick the right song from that time period that Charlie would listen to, for the most part, um, that would fit. And that's the thing that I really enjoyed. Uh, and, you know, when I hear It Takes Two, I always think of the proposal with uh, Sandra Bullock and... Uh, Ryan, um, well, not Ryan Gosling, um, Ryan Reynolds, Ryan Reynolds, uh, where, yeah, they're, they're singing and, anyway, um, I'll, so I'll spare everybody that, but I <laughs> felt like that it, this movie did a good job using the nostalgia and I didn't feel like it was, there were only a few moments where they really were calling up 80s things, like, when Bumblebee turns on the TV and it's Pong, you know, like that kind of stuff. There was a few moments like that that really kind of jump out at you that this is the 80s, but it didn't feel like it was completely hitting you over the head every moment, especially in the soundtrack um, to where like, yes, you're in the 80s, enjoy it. You're in the 80s, enjoy it. So I appreciate that. The closest they came was, you know, watching the end of The Breakfast Club and then at the yes, end of the movie, yes. playing that exact song. But then I felt like they justified it because when Burns salutes Bumblebee and he does the fist pump thing because he's watched Breakfast Club enough times, I felt like they earned that fairly obvious song choice at the end of the movie because they set it up throughout the film. Yeah, 100% agree. So, so... We, I think we've been going on about the movie now for over an hour, and I am really interested at where you come down then on your ratings for Bumblebee. I feel like it, I'm going to do it on a, a scale of five because I feel like that's the best one. I, I would give it, I would give it three and a half all sparks out of five. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's funny that you say that because I'm 100% right there with you. In fact, that was my original rating when I came out of the movie, and it's still my rating after rewatching it. Part of that is because as good as this movie is, there are a lot of cliches throughout it. And mm -hmm. for the most part, they overcome that, but it is a movie that is riddled with cliches. And so that is what it is. But the performance of Haley Seinfeld, the effects in the movie, the the fact that the movie never kind of like makes itself bigger. It's not longer than it needs to be like all of those things overcome some of that so that I don't really care. I just enjoy watching the movie. But I can't deny that as a film, those things are there. And 
Uh, there are a few things I would have done differently. Like I mentioned, I, I think the the bumblebee scene in the house is it's, it's fine. the eye roll. It's the eye yeah. roll. Yeah, and I know why they're doing it because they it was their way of like getting him to plug himself into the socket and all. But I just feel like there's better ways to do that than have the scene we've kind of seen before. But in the end, it it becomes a movie that it's really enjoyable to watch. And I think, like you mentioned, this is one of those movies that. You could have your family sit down and watch too, which is enjoyable. And I appreciate that this is the kind of thing that could, um, you know, if they did a sequel to this, it would be kind of interesting to see where they go. I have no idea how they'd have, you know, Haley Seinfeld in it again at this point because they kind of it felt like they wrapped up her story with Bumblebee. Uh, but you could definitely have a character like John Cena back uh, and and something like that so anyway all in all it it's a a fun movie and i'm i just love that like it's so much fun to sit down and talk about a movie that is this enjoyable and this wholesome i don't feel like we get to do that very often i really appreciate we have great associate producers here through patreon um we've got ken Tripp, davis grayson ryan millette and daniel noah who've been supporting the show and the entire network for a long time now just a quick word about that um, you heard this a million times over, but I, I just want to implore you, this is a very large network. And for what we do here through this network, there's no way that we can do it alone. And, and we really, truly do need your help to make sure all the podcasts that we do here on the network keep coming to each and every week. It's very expensive. And if we don't have the funds, we won't be able to do it. So I implore you, go over to patreon.com slash trekfm, see how you can become part of the team. We have some great contribution levels for you. And in the end, though, everybody giving a little bit is what makes this network happen. So again, that's patreon.com slash trekfm. Please do help us out. Uh, Scott, so great to have you back on the show. This was a lot of fun uh, talking about Bumblebee. So where can everybody catch up with you online and uh, tell them a little bit about uh, the network that you were on? Well, I can be found mainly on Twitter at ScottDC27. Uh, you can also find me on Vero at Scott McClellan, since now we have our little at usernames <laughs> on Vero now. And then, of course, over at SuicideSquadCast.com, where you can find the entire network of shows. I am a co-host and co-founder of the network over there on the Suicide Squadcast, your weekly news and review show about pretty much anything DC Comics related, specifically news with some television and comics sprinkled in. Uh, I am also been a regular guest host on our DC TV Squadcast show, where I have been joining the regular host to talk about Young Justice and Krypton, because I love those shows and I love getting to talk about them weekly. So those are the two shows of the four shows on our network, which does include Fans Without Borders and DC Comics Squadcast. So all of that can be found at SuicideSquadcast.com. Everybody should check it out, too. It's a great network. It's a blast to listen to. So make sure you do. Uh, you can find me uh, on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd, and Vero now under the same name, MattRushing02. Uh, I'm also here on the network doing The Orb with Chris Jones as we talk about Star Trek D Space Nine. I'm over on the Nerd Party Network. I do two shows over there. One is called Aggressive Negotiations. I do that with John Mills, and we talk about Star Wars each and every week. It is a Star Wars-specific podcast, so if you love Star Wars, it is the place for you. 
You can also find me doing Owl Post with Drea Kaufman as we talk about Harry Potter each and every week, one chapter at a time. We're actually looking to wrap up The Order of the Phoenix very soon. I think we have five chapters left, if I'm not mistaken, maybe six. So make sure you're checking that out. And then last but not least, I do Cinema Stories with my good friend Courtney. And that is where we talk about films, but through the lens of faith. We want to say thank you so much for joining us. And as always, y'all come back now, you hear? Oh, um, I just, uh, you'll appreciate this. I just finally got a chance because I just haven't had it. But I started um, Krypton Season 2 today. So, <gasps> yeah. Yay! So, I haven't been able to watch any of it so far. So, um, it's a good, I mean, it's turned into a really good show. Um, it's turned into a show that, like, I anticipate. Like, I get ready for the next episode. Yeah. Yeah, me too. And and part of that, I think, is just that it's so much more than the Superman prequel. You know, like it's 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 a show in its own right that has its own it's doing its own thing and it's playing around with it. it it's not really it doesn't feel like it's beholden to a lot of canon. Um, they just well, it's again, not because it's an alternate yeah. timeline. So, well, yeah, I mean, they've pretty much created one at this point. Um so I just appreciate that. It's like, you know, the I, this is what I think is so smart to do with comics is take the source material, but then just make it completely your own. Um, then that way, one, fans are surprised. Um, but two, um, it, it's what com- but the best comics do anyway. I mean, that, isn't that why everybody loves Kingdom Come? You know, like I know. Wh- why do, like, why do we all if? love Elseworlds as yeah. an imprint? Yeah. Yeah, yep, actually, absolutely. So, anyway, that was, it's been exciting to, to get back into that. Um, and, uh, I've been watching Swamp Thing, too. So, which is, it's pretty good. It, I love watching it like at 11 o'clock at night because the creep factor mm-hmm. is like, I don't want, like, I don't want to watch that show during the day because then it totally, like, kills the, the atmosphere yeah. and the ambiance that the show creates. Yeah. I think the thing I'm most interested is to see is um, since you know they're doing HBO Max, if DC Universal lasts, which I don't think it's going to. Um, I just don't think it can fiscally. So I'm I'm just kind of curious. I mean, I'm curious with HBO with the with the new report that HBO Max is going to be sharing the original shows mm-hmm. and I, because something that we've been talking about, you know, the, the comics library thing on DC universe is really the biggest draw for it. And, you Which know, is, as it is really nice, but I, I, I will say personally, I have so much other things. I have so much else to read right now. I just haven't really been able to utilize that. I've used it mostly for, the shows, you know, and the the mm-hmm. new release animated movies that have come out, which I haven't had to, to buy right now because I already have them for free on the service. So, um, you know, that's which I've I've enjoyed all of that. 
Um, but I just can't see if they really truly are going to share those shows with HBO Max. It's like I'm much better served getting HBO Max than the comics library part, which, you know, if I really want the comics, I, I can go and buy them every once in a while when they have a big sale, you know, on uh, comicsology. And still get all the goodness of the shows, which I'm really enjoying. Like, I, I want to continue with Titans, you know, see where that goes. Um, and, uh, you know, of course, if they decide they want to keep doing more Young Justice, which this season, I would say, has been good. But I'm a little annoyed. It's not annoying me, like, to the degree of, like, half the CW shows I just don't even bother watching anymore. Yeah, you I mean, know. I don't watch Supergirl anymore because of that reason. Part of that because it was not a very well-written show. No, <laughs> um, no, it was um, not. Which is a really badly written show. And, I'm, I mean, the fact that Arrow's ending now, and, um, I mean, I'm not going to even bother with Batwoman. I mean, I just don't care enough. Um, I'm going and, to give so. Batwoman a shot just because I'm a glutton for punishment and I have never and I haven't learned my lesson but <laughs> yeah yeah exactly but the instant it goes down the instant it starts going down the supergirl route oh no I, I click you know i i i've uh, I don't feel compelled to watch the C- like I can get three episodes behind on the CW show. Basically, it's like yeah. I'll get behind. I still ever- haven't however- finished Black Lightning from last season, and that's probably the best one of all of them. Honestly, oh no, that is no that uh, truer words were never spoken. Black Lightning finds a way to deal with the topical nature, but do it well. I feel like they just have good writing behind the show. Yes, like and because the sh- seasons are shorter, they're much better um because they're not trying to play out too long uh, too short of a story time over too long uh an episode number which is where i mean like and wow just the flash was awful last year i mean this stupid storyline with his daughter just drove me insane the only thing i loved about that was it brought back eobard thon which has always been my favorite part of that yes yes <laughs> watching, wa- watching, I mean, and not just Eobarthon, but watching, and why am I blanking on his name? I feel so bad. Tom Cavanaugh? Tom, watching Tom Cavanaugh play Eobarthon is yeah. just yeah. the lifeblood of that show for me. Yeah, it's greatness. Um, and actually, I think the one my wife and I have enjoyed the most has been Legends of Tomorrow, and part of that is just because it embraces the absolute bonkersness of it. And, it and see, that's why apologies. I absolutely hate so. that show. I despise Legends of Tomorrow with such a passion. That's funny. Um, but I think I think part of it is just that they just they don't give a crap in the sense of like they'll they'll just do whatever they want to do, which is truly comic book ness you know uh, um so i think my thing i can is understand that... why people wouldn't like it oh no no absolutely i mean like ray on our network he knows i hate that show he knows why i hate that show and he loves that show but he's like but i get why you hate it scott i mean but that's why i love having shows like krypton or like the dc universe originals because i'm like this is what's feeding my comic book soul because I, this I, is yeah. what i want <laughs> yeah i feel like it would be it will it would be interesting to me if DC Universe 
it had just been put into HBO Max and they decided to quit all the CW show crap and just start creating content like Disney is doing for, say, like Star Wars with The Mandalorian, mm-hmm. where they're really, truly going to do high-quality content in the Star Wars universe. Do that for DC, because you could do some really neat stuff. I mean, think about, like, what if you had the Kingdom Come miniseries, you know? Like, just stuff like that that you could never do anywhere else. Um, but you could truly do in that type of format that that's the stuff that I think would be gold. And see, and see for me, I, bring back Matt Ryan's Constantine show, but do it on a streaming network where you can do it freaking right. True. Well, I mean, it, they're already kind of doing it, aren't they? On, I mean, that's what Swamp Thing is so much. I mean, Constantine yeah. would fit perfectly in that show. Well, considering that Constantine was created in Swamp Thing, yes, that's yes, the point, so, though. Is that? Yeah. And I love Matt Ryan's portrayal of the character, but as as Ray likes to joke, you hate Legends of Tomorrow so much that even Matt Ryan's Constantine being on the show is not enough to make you watch the show, is it, Skylight? No. Yeah, yeah. No, he's it's good not. On that. He's very good on that show. Um, but yeah, just I just... Good. I, I feel like the other part of this is is that they are trying to drag out too many of these shows past their prime anyway. It's like yes. what you needed to do was you needed to create, like, and if they had been smart, they would have just had Arrow. It's only five seasons. You have five seasons. It's about the five years they've been on the island, and they 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 made it longer, and they shouldn't have. You know, they should do that same thing with all of these shows is they legitimately know what the beginning and ending is. So they know what they're working towards. And no matter how popular it is, just end it. And and you've got other comics you can adapt, you know. Um, but that's you American. Bring but those what you just said is you, in but the universe. You, what, I but, know. Yeah. But what you just described is like the problem with American television. Oh, this yeah, is why I love British TV. When they're done, they're done. Yeah, yeah, it's very true. So, all right, anyway, we could keep talking about this all night, but um, I could put that at the end. It's just a huge stinger. <laughs> um, anyway, all right. 